You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. A 29-year veteran of the FDNY, Chief Oshevsky was a newly promoted captain on September 11, 2001. I am honored to have her here today to discuss her response to the World Trade Center attack and the oversight she provided. Chief, on the morning of 9-11, you reported for duty as a captain to EMS operations on the seventh floor of FDNY headquarters located in downtown Brooklyn. I'm dating technology here when I say that you received the notification that a plane flew into the World Trade Center on your department-issued alphanumeric pager. Tell us, what did you do after you read that message? I read that message and it simply said, plane into World Trade Center. And it was a reaction of disbelief at first, but then people were running in the building on the floor, which was very unusual because it's sort of uh, polished brass and marble in the building and people are usually very calm, but they were running. So I put the two and two together and decided to look for myself. So I went down the hall to the end of the hall and there's a window that faces downtown Manhattan and a perfect view of the World Trade Center. And I could see an enormous gash with a lot of black billowing smoke coming out. And I realized this was no small plane. This was a large event and it was confirmed. How did you get down there? I took my department issued city car and a lieutenant with me. And it was a quick drive across the Brooklyn Bridge to that area. And we got down there easily because the roads were already closed off by the police. So we were able to get there in minutes and got there about 9.15 a.m. What did you do when you got there? Well, I was expecting to work with a, an EMS chief. So we parked the car in where we thought was a safe spot, although later it got crushed. And I found an EMS chief. I was expecting to operate under him or her in the incident command system capacity to be given a role and carry on those duties for that role. So I went over to the chief and he immediately assigned us over to the east side of the complex. So we ran over there and I found that there was nobody else there as far as command, command a structure, a chief higher rank than me there. So I figured I'm it. So I had to take command of that area. So it was the intersection of Church and Fulton Streets directly across the street from Tower One. So that's where we started to set up. And what was already there when you arrived? Lots of people running around, civilians. There were some EMTs and paramedics, but like I said, very few officers at that time because they're the, not the initial response. It would be the EMTs and paramedics there first. So what we found was people evacuating the buildings. Police were very orderly, trying to get the people down the stairs and out of the building, and there was people streaming out, heading left and right. Those who were not injured, the police sent on their way, in other words, across the Brooklyn Bridge or uptown. Those that were injured, they funneled over to what we were setting up as our area to triage and treat the patients. How many patients did you treat in that area? There were so many coming out, and Remember, we got there at 9.15, and the first collapse happened at about 10 o'clock a.m. So I was there for only 45 minutes before the first collapse. In that time period, we probably treated and transported 75 to 100 people. 
is that just from your sector, or do you think that that was the number of patients seen across the entire complex? I think that was just our area, and there was a lot more waiting to be transported. We just didn't have enough ambulances at that time at the scene. We roughly set up the four corners of the complex as a medical uh, area. So I was, let's say, Church Street Medical, and there was at least three other major sections to triage, treat, and transport patients around the complex. I was just one of them. And they were all named based on the street they were located on? And that would be a normal operation for something of this magnitude where you're assigned a sector and given a name for that sector? Right. Uh, that would be typical for such a large operation. So what I was doing was we used tape to rope off an area for the treatment areas, uh, green, yellow, and even red, because we didn't have enough ambulances to get even the most serious patients, red being the most serious. So they had to wait for a little while. But that's what we did. And when the officers came in, I assigned them duties. You're the triage officer, you're the transportation officer, you're the tracking officer. And they went off and they tried the best they could to accomplish those tasks. And it was chaos. I mean, we tried our best to do a controlled, structured, organized uh, operation. And I think we succeeded to a certain extent. We, we got things moving. We had a system we were, where we were triaging, putting on the triage tags and getting those patients out of there. What do you think made it chaotic? If you looked up, you realize why it was chaotic, because not only was that first tower struck that I saw at the window, the second tower was struck also, which happened on my way over. So when I got there and looked up, I, I had to look three times. I, I couldn't believe I missed that out the window, but I hadn't. It, it occurred as I was getting there. So the two towers were struck. So there was a lot of pedestrians milling around and running. Uh, there was panic because who knows if this was over yet. Uh, and then there were all the people evacuating. There was uh, all the emergency vehicles coming in from all the services, PD, uh, EMS, you name it, fire engines starting to clog and clutter the streets. So there was a lot going on. What type of injuries were the people coming out with? You name it, we saw it. We saw mostly, though, burns, broken bones, smoke inhalation, uh, exhaustion, heat exhaustion, because it was a warm day and they were walking down 70, 80 flights, uh, and also cuts and bruises. And some people, if they had a pre-existing medical condition, it was exacerbated, for instance, asthma, cardiac, uh, and a guy, I just remember out of the corner of my eye seeing a man have a seizure in the middle of the street. Did you personally treat any of the patients or were you able to maintain your command role? I was able to maintain my command role. Uh, there was a lot of people coming in at that point as far as EMTs and paramedics. Uh, some came from headquarters, you know, six to a vehicle. Officers doubled and tripled up in their vehicles. People jumped in the back of ambulances as extra people. So we were getting a good amount of people to come in and help. So I was able to maintain control of the scene rather than get involved in any individual patient. So you're 45 minutes or so into this operation. You have treated a significant number of patients. You've moved out a significant number of patients. And now this situation changes because the building starts to collapse. How did you become aware that this was happening? And what did you do? We were diagonal across from Tower 2, which was the first building to collapse. 
And all I can say is we felt it before we realized what was going on. There was such a deep rumble that you felt it in your chest and your whole body and you knew something was wrong. So we all stood up, turned to look and saw Tower 2 coming down. Although it was hard to tell that's what was happening because we were so close. It was, the perspective was such that this is terrible, something's gone horribly wrong and we need to get out of here now. So everybody turned and ran away from the rubble and smoke and debris that was coming at us. That was the only thing you thought to do was get out of here right now to save your life. So you run? So we ran uh, in all different directions. Uh, and the, the path you took might have been the difference between life and death. I chose to run up Fulton Street towards Broadway, and that would have taken me north and away from the scene. I ran past a subway station, which I, in a split second, decided might be too dangerous to get down there and be trapped down there. I ran past the church, and I kept running, uh, hoping to get as far away as fast as I could. While the cloud was looming behind us, I had to stop running, though, when the cloud caught up. And in that case, everything got pitch dark, and you could not see your hand in front of your face. So you had to stop running because you didn't know which way you were going. You could be running right back into it for all you know. And you were, became very disoriented. And now you're choking to death as well. It was a very thick, thick, uh, it felt solid almost in your throat that when the cloud came and, and took you over. And now I thought I was choking to death and there was no way I was going to get out of it. I absolutely was certain that was it. I was going to die. And I almost passed out. And I figured, well, if I do that, I'm surely going to die. So I kept my consciousness and started stumbling out of there and just in any direction, just to get out. And I saw a traffic light finally as I was bumping into things, but it gave me perspective. So I was able to follow that light. And then I saw another one and another, and I kept walking. And I finally made my way back out into the sunshine. Were there people around you at that point? Were you aware of anybody else's presence? Yes, although it did get extremely quiet because the stuff in the cloud was so thick. It, it muffled everything. So it went from this tremendous roar to complete silence, except you were able to hear people crying out for help, which was very difficult for me personally because as a caregiver and a paramedic, I'm there to help. But I couldn't because I had to save my own life. So it was extremely difficult to hear these people and not be able to help them. But you did hear people around you. So now you've gotten past the cloud and you're on the other side of the cloud. What do you do? I had no idea what kind of condition I was in. I was in shock. I knew I was covered with the ash. I knew I was relatively unharmed. I checked my arms and legs and fingers and everything was there. And I was in, in utter surprise that I made it out at all. And I never, didn't see anybody else I was working with come out with me. So I thought they were all dead. So I considered myself very lucky to have gotten out of there. And at that point, I saw other ambulances coming towards the scene. And I, I flagged them down. So here's this uh, big, tall, crazy lady covered in ash trying to stop these ambulances. And I don't even know why they stopped, but they did. And I explained to them 
what I thought was going on and that you're not going any further because it could be too dangerous. Whatever's going on there could still be going on. Let's not go in until we know it's safe. So we set up another treatment area, triage treatment, for people now stumbling out of that cloud. And at that point, m most of the problem was respiratory, choking, vomiting, coughing. Uh, they, need to be, they needed to be decontaminated, and that's what we were dealing with at that point. What about you? Aren't you a patient at this point? I was, although I stubbornly insisted I wasn't. They all wanted to throw me in an ambulance and, and take me to the hospital, but I was adamantly insisting on being in charge. I felt that everybody in charge was dead, and I'm the only one of any rank to still be able to somehow manage what was going on. So I kept doing it. I, I just kept giving direction. I, I sucked on some oxygen at some point, uh, got some water, but I kept on managing the scene and explaining to everybody what they should be doing. At this point, do you have any sense of time? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, while we were there with our patients, we heard a sound again and then another cloud's coming up the street and I was like, here we go again. And we had to run a little bit uptown further north to get away from that. So I was just, like I said, in total shock. And somebody else came to me and said, they hit the Pentagon and I think the Capitol, and which turned out to be erroneous, but the Pentagon was hit. And I thought, they're, they're just, this is all out war. They're, uh, we could still all be dead for all I know, but we just have to keep on working and doing the best we can and stay focused. So the second tower has come down, you've escaped that cloud. You regroup again? Yes, uh, we went further uptown and started doing the same thing. We got some boil bottled water from store owners. Uh, they just brought out cases for us to give people water and wash them down. And then I got a portable radio got on the air and tried to find out where our command post was, because I figured this scene was pretty much gonna run on its own, treating these people here, let me try to get to the command post. Because again, I thought there were very few officers left alive. So I found out where it was, hitched a ride in an ambulance to go back to the west side of the complex to get to the command post. Once I got there, one of my bosses took one look at me and said, get in an ambulance, you're going to the hospital. And at that point, I couldn't argue, and I was taken to the hospital to get treated. What hospital did they take you to? NYU, downtown. Mm -hmm. Were there a lot of patients there? There were virtually no patients there, which really shocked me. I got there, they opened the back doors of the ambulance, and an entire team of medical providers were there to help me in their scrubs. Uh, and I said to them, I'm not so bad. Go treat the people who are more serious than I am. And they said... There's not many here. I said, how many did you get from the scene? And they said, 12 people. And I said, 12? That's all you got? And it struck me, they're all dead. Everybody involved, the people in the buildings, the people down below are dead, and you're not going to get that many. And it, it, that's when it really hit me how serious this was and the magnitude that this was, that they only got 12 patients. So they were able to really devote all their attention to me because nobody was coming in. How long were you in the hospital? I think two or three hours. And again, like you said, I, I had no sense of time. So now we're talking, I got out of there 
probably about 12, 1 o'clock, I said, look, uh, can I go? Uh, I just, I just want to go. They gave me some IV fluids. Uh, I got cleaned up a little bit, and I just, I just wanted to get out, out of there. So I put on my same dirty clothes, and I walked out of the hospital, and I, I had no idea what to do because I didn't have a vehicle. I had nowhere to get, no way to get anywhere. I was just wandering around Manhattan. So I went to Bellevue Station, or Bellevue Station, which is very close to NYU. I walked in there, and uh, I sat down in their lounge, and they had the TV on. And they kept showing the buildings collapsing over and over. And I looked at them, I said, the, they both collapsed? And they said, yeah, where have you been? And I couldn't believe it. And I said, again, how did I survive that? So I hitched a ride from them back to headquarters, and now by now it's about 6 p.m. Ghost town there. Everybody was either at the scene, hospital, or presumed dead. And I figured, there I am again, highest ranked. Let me try to stay here, work, and be the point person at headquarters. And I stayed there till about 6 a.m. the next day, at which point I hitched a ride home from somebody to Long Island because my car was crushed back at the scene. Wow. I can't believe you had the presence of mind to be able to come back to headquarters and, you know, take the torch and move on. You know, I was on automatic, automatic pilot, because adrenaline and some sort of sense of duty kicked in, and I didn't even think about it. Uh, there was a need, and I, I just figured people paid with, for it with their lives, I might as well stay here and try to help if I could. I admire that. What are you most proud of about the EMS members' performance that day? Their selflessness and their unselfishness. In other words, they stepped up and stepped right in. I'm sure there was fear and confusion, but they were able to maintain their focus, it was hard, but treat their patients. They didn't run away. They didn't uh, have any sense of, I'm getting out of here. In fact, it was the opposite. Everybody heard there was problems down there and they jumped on an ambulance, even if they were just going off duty, they came back in and jumped in the back of an ambulance and went to the scene. They drove their own car to the scene. They walked to the scene. And even after the collapses, some people got clobbered and went right back in to help, to find their coworkers, to find the patients, to find additional patients. So it was extremely impressive that these people were able to step up and, and do that without question. I can't help but think that uh, you're actually describing yourself unwittingly. How long were you away from the site? About a month. There was so much work to do at headquarters. In fact, I was responsible for assigning other captains to work down there in shifts. And then I wanted to take some shifts. So I did. So I got down there. And by that time, there was a very structured plan in place for the rescue recovery. And uh, there was uh, an incident management team set up. So I went down to the site. And uh, it, I, I have to admit, it wasn't easy to go back. I even retraced my steps that I took that day because I just wanted to see what I did. So I went back to the intersection and I walked up Fulton Street back to Broadway and I just looked around. It was a beautiful day. 
And I just needed to do that for some, some kind of closure or something, I guess, to see how I managed to, to get away from that. Everybody handles the experience differently. Some people have still haven't been back there. Did you continue working after that first tour? I didn't do too much more down there. I was very much needed at headquarters, but I did get down there a few more times in other capacities. I went down there when they were lowering the damaged ambulance into the museum underground. Uh, I, I went back for a couple more ceremonies. And when they finished the museum, Memorial Museum, I went to see that as well. So I have been back there. And each time it's kind of melancholy to be down there, a little somber, especially going into the museum. And that was my experience as well. What does never forget mean to you? It means to me those who lost their lives, whether it was civilians or emergency workers. Those are the heroes. Uh, I think that they were either innocently doing their jobs for the day or responding to the scene. And it must have been very difficult for each one of those people to face what they did at the end. So those are the people I think about when we say never forget. Janice, it really means a lot to me that you took the time today to share this story with everyone. Not everyone uh, who is a survivor can speak about and recall in such detail um, how their day went that day. And it's an important story to tell. It's important for the people coming in behind us who hopefully will never have to deal with the type of response that was handled on 9-11. But if they do have to deal with it, I think it's important that they hear from the people who came before them, what it was like, how to get through something so difficult and challenging, and how to still help people when your own safety is in jeopardy. Hopefully it'll never happen again. Um, but I think that unless people like you are willing to tell the story, um, the story dies because eventually we won't be here anymore. People like you and me who are pushing into the third decade of service have less time left on the job than more time. And I think it's important that these stories be told. So I am personally very grateful to you for taking the time and if it's been uncomfortable or difficult for you, it's especially appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think that you're right. It, it's, a, it's an emotional story to tell this, this many years later even. And I don't talk about it often, but, but like you said, I think it's uh, stories worth sharing. Agreed. Thank you for joining us today for the FDNY Pro one-on-one -on -one podcast. Listen in next time when we talk to more FDNY EMS professionals. Until then, stay safe. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us.
to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.